Today, we discuss the dominance of comic books in pop culture. While comic book films have dominated the space for the past 22 years, we look back at a time when comics had their biggest sales ever. Marvel had 40% of the market. Image Comics had 20% of the comic book market. Two of the bright, shining stars of that time of 1992, Todd McFarlane and Chris Claremont weigh in on the topics of the time and their status in comic book lore. An interview with the Comics Journal finds each man representing decidedly different points of view at key junctures in their career. Two architects of pop culture sound off on today's all-new Observations. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, the Rob in Observations. We talk about comics and pop culture here on the regular at Observations. Since I was a wee lad and buying my favorite comic books off the metal spinner racks, the creaky, you know, whiny spinner racks. They made these giant loud noises when you when you would turn them and 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 then you would peruse and see which of those comic books you could afford. How many quarters did you have in your pocket? How many lawns did you mow? How many papers did you deliver? You guys who are old like me, you guys can relate. You 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 ladies and gentlemen can relate. Comic books is now the 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 go-to informant for all things pop culture, it seems like everyone is looking for another comic book to adapt and to expand. And trust me, I have comic books. I have a catalog of my own comic books, so I know what that's like. I know what that's like to answer those calls, to to, to talk to different animators, different filmmakers, uh, people in the television business. Comic books have never been more relevant, more, more, more explosive into the culture than they have now. The success of the MCU is largely the biggest driving force behind this. I never thought that it would continue, but here we are in what I believe to be the 22nd, uh, end of the 22nd year of this incredible momentum for for comic book superheroes. Just the other day, uh, Mr. Hugh Jackman, I was was looking at an interview with Mr. Hugh Jackman, who is now openly discussing his returning to the role of Wolverine, a role that only he has portrayed on on screen, and, and returning... Since 2017, when Logan was re- was released, so he hasn't been depicted as the character for us. It, it'll be really close here now, over five years, but it, we're at the five year mark. But he hasn't been on set portraying Wolverine in in six or some years because obviously they shoot the movie, then they edit it, and then they release it. But in this interview, where he's, he is talking candidly about returning as Wolverine in Deadpool three alongside Ryan Reynolds. You know, he talks again about something that I've just mentioned recently here. When he was looking for other roles, he had made X-Men. And now he is going out and he is seeking to be in other roles. And he was trying to be in uh, a movie called Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock, which, as we know, was a massive hit. When that hit, I mean, Sandra Bullock in the in the throes of, of her giant success, Pretty much everything she touched was gold, and Miss Congeniality was a huge breakthrough from her as a cop that went undercover um, in a beauty pageant. And he talks about how he was interviewing and 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 uh, trying to to get the role, and that his agent was like, "Really, you know, I don't really know if you need to play this part, but I want you to get this part. I want I want you to get this on his on your resume." And Hugh, uh, you know, again the agent 
was downplaying the aspect of the X-Men because superhero films were semi-frowned upon. And so as he was going to, uh, to, to, to audition, you know, this is one of those roles that his agent had told him that he references in the interview in Entertainment Weekly that he says, don't tell anybody you were in X-Men. Nobody knows what X-Men is, and it could do terribly. So just, uh, you know, we're not going to, we're going to say you just wrapped a studio picture. And, 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 and call it a sci-fi movie, but definitely don't call it a comic book superhero film. And then Hugh talks in a very self, uh, in a self-depreciating way, which is Hugh is so um, humble and kind, and, 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 and that, that's what you'll always get when you encounter him in real life. He's a true, true gentleman. And as he's telling you this story, he's talking about how he wasn't, uh, he just couldn't keep up with Sandra Bullock. And, 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 and you know, he, he, he ultimately failed to land the role that went to Benjamin Bratt. But he is inserting in this story, again, how X-Men is not something that he believes the general public knew about, and which, of course, they didn't. Uh, this, is, this was still the, dom- the domain of comic books and Saturday morning cartoons as much as, as, as uh, the market had been penetrated with comic books and cartoons. We see the movie success as the ultimate, the ultimate dominating force. When you can get that movie that packs them in, that has them absolutely show up and 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 uh, buy a ticket, which I mean, nowadays, guys, these tickets nowadays are whoa. I mean, they they are not cheap. Uh, I have also maybe like some of you, I look away <laughs> when I have to make that charge. I look away. Oh boy, I'm I'm going to see Top Gun again for the ninth time, and I'm I'm, I'm uh, this is before the tenth time, obviously. And and when I am now in pursuit of the biggest best experience, I'm going to go see it in PDX. I'm going to go see it in 40X. I'm going to go all these different roller coaster ride aspects. The way they built the screens out, made them bigger, made bent them, bent them like like a horseshoe around around the theater. So so the parts of the action are on the left and the right. I mean the theater experience is going up because they need to entice you to keep coming back. And so the X-Men was not yet, as he auditioned for this, the blockbuster breakout success. But we all know once X-Men hit, boom, Hugh Jackman, he's in movies with Meg Ryan. He's in movies with John Travolta. He, his career just shot out like a cannon and deservedly so. Hugely, hugely charismatic, terrific actor, great movie star, looks, presence, and, and you know, Hugh, Hugh didn't need the X-Men anymore once the X-Men was a giant success, but he was smart to stay next to it. And for 22 years, he's been known as Wolverine. And now we're going to get him back. But again, I, I just wanted to reference that, that this, this comic book turnaround in the culture was, was something that really occurred in 2000. And so we're 22 years into this. You know, we don't even count the Batman movies because as I've told you guys numerous times, if you've listened to the show, being someone who, you know, we started Image Comics, me and my partners, and suddenly the phone was ringing and people were asking me to take meetings in Hollywood to see if I would consider uh, setting up my properties, Youngblood Brigade, Bloodstrike. I met with all manner of superstar uh, talent, Tom Cruise, Will Smith, uh, Steven Spielberg, the, 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 the two producers that were doing the Jack Ryan, uh, you know, Clancy books at the time. And, and everybody wanted to investigate because, and they'd always mention it again and again and again, it was the only successful comic book film that there was. And they all, and they all would just continue to come back to Batman, Batman, Batman. The 1989 and the subsequent 1992 Batman sequel that summer, the Keaton 
movies were just on everybody's mind in the fact that they were so successful. And was there, in fact, another comic book superhero movie that they could tap? Well, there was all manner of speculation uh, that, that, that really nothing would work outside of Batman. And I would always just immediately, all you had to do was engage these guys in a few conversations. And you'd see that they really didn't trust the comic book material. They didn't trust that they could put all... Put, pull off the visuals that they could put that manner of special effects on screen because special effects was still a little dodgy. You know, you had, you had the stuff that Cameron was doing, but everyone knew that James Cameron was only going to make James Cameron movies. So when he brought his level of expertise to that special effects, you you know, not everybody was getting that the special effects breakthrough. What, what, what suddenly gave everyone like, wow, hope was the Jurassic park films a couple years later when we saw those T-Rexes and those dinosaurs and CGI, and it was like, whoa, now we're doing more than lightsabers and, you know, spaceships. We're doing creatures, and they look real. And that was just the beginning. And then in Forrest Gump, you were inserting historical figures, and Forrest Gump is talking to, you know, JFK, and he's with Nixon, and whatever else they inserted him to. So there there was a subversive kind of uh, uh, CGI aspect, too. So So really... You know, a couple of years later, after I'm getting these calls, was when this, the, the, the special effects community and the special effects capabilities e- expanded, broke through, made it to the other side. Recently, there have been a number of documentaries, none better than the um, Industrial Light and Magic uh, documentary on Disney+, Plus, where it talks literally how significant Jurassic Park was in breaking through. And it was no longer just a do- the dominion of, of some practical effects uh, mixed mixed with some computer effects. It was like you could do this entire thing on the computer. And and so in 1992, when they're talking to me about these possibilities, and I'm not alone. I'm not the only guy getting the call. I'm not the only person trying to set these films up. Marvel is trying to make an X-Men film at the same time. And some of the, so many of the people who I did meet with had a had an experience with comics, like Steven Spielberg grew up, liked comics, was interested in possibly getting a comic book franchise that he would be, you know, able to pull off on screen. And then, of course, you had the producers of the the Jack Ryan, you know, Patriot Games and Hunt for Red October, those movies. Those guys uh, were, were, were interested because one of them was on the board of Marvel for a brief, brief period of time, and he literally said, I've, I've seen how successful these comic book properties can be, and we want to get into the game. We want to get into the game. So a lot of the times, you know, you're you're just fortunate to be catching a trend, but this isn't a trend. This is a 22-year runaway freight train that has dominated the culture. And and again, you know, the American comic book, the American comic book, the comic book literally uh, is an American art form, started roughly in 1842 with, with cartoons and then collecting them as comic books. But the American comic book took off in the 30s and never looked back. And we have been really the defining force in the comic book world. Now, Japan, in many aspects, told us to hear all hold my beer while they completely took over the comic book, uh, you know, storytelling mode. And by the nineties, they were moving more manga than we in the U S would ever move as comic books, but they're inspirational stuff. It's great to have competition and, and, and the way that they, uh, make their comics sometimes by committee with background artists and dedicated, um, special effects people. I mean, that the, the, the studios mass produce, that's how you get so many pages of manga, it's fascinating. It's something that that here in America we did, you know, attempt. Some of us attempted in, in studio systems to see if we could pull it off. But Americans want to stand out, and I never once asked somebody to, hey, 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 
you know, subvert to all you five guys, subvert yourself into just my shadow. No, people want to stand out. They want their names on the comics. They want to be known. They want if they're penciling it, inking it, and 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 so in in the uh, in the in the manga world, uh, uh, they approach making manga the same way they did making anime, except with not as many credits. One guy got really the the big name, the creator of the property and then he would maybe lay out the story and then some people would do figures and some people would do faces and some people would do these amazing backgrounds you didn't think all of that was being done by one person if you did there is a deep dive to go into the studio system and how much of the manga that we you know just um, absolutely elevate and, and to some extent worship was done by a committee a committee of super talented guys not in any way, shape, or form demeaning the talents, but then there's one name out in front and then there is the rest of the people who helped contribute to that. And we would sit around in the 90s, uh, in the late 80s, myself, Todd, looking at Akira and some of these other incredibly accomplished works and being like, can you imagine going, here, do all the backgrounds to some incredible background uh, illustrator, the likes of which the backgrounds are depicted in Akira. If you have never picked up Akira, I don't say it here enough, it is a transformational work. Uh, they, they, they talk about, again, you know, putting it on screen. And, and let me tell you something. If they put it on screen and it becomes what I just said 10 minutes ago, a, a big blockbuster, a movie hit, something that put butts in the seats that people paid big money for, then everyone will know what a carry is. It'll be, you know, outside of maybe the five T-shirts they have at Hot Topic or Box Lunch or the mug, you know. Akira will be a giant, mega, well-known. Everybody will have suddenly always have heard of Akira in the same way you know how it is in music. Uh, a band nobody's heard of has a has a couple hits, and then everybody always was a fan of that band, and they know that early first album, and they're an expert, and you know how it goes. So comic books and pop culture have been rocking and rolling since I was a kid, but not in this way. And what we do on Observations is we, we discuss it, and you can already see how my kind of brain just cracks open and I just love discussing comic books and if you did a quick review of what we've just discussed a comic books are you know dominating the culture when did that happen that happened in the 2000s the x-men movie kicked down the door became the first giant blockbuster there's the key word that blade doesn't have next to it blade wasn't a blockbuster x-men was considered a blockbuster a and also a higher bar to clear given that it was a team of superheroes but also you know the, the, the talent that had made it wasn't going around trying to dine out on X-Men yet until it was in theater. So if you were doing an, on a, an audition even two months before it came out, you weren't exactly telling everyone, hey, I'm in the X-Men because it was an unknown factor until it wasn't. It, it became a blockbuster and then X-Men became more than a Saturday morning cartoon, cartoon show, more than a comic book, more than the dominion of children. Because so much of the breaking out of comic books has been breaking them out of, oh, that's kid stuff. That's kid stuff. Even in high school, I hid my comic books. And even when I was working on comic books, you know, we would talk, a group of us, uh, a group of us professionals uh, would talk at a Denny's at midnight, you know, having, you know, moons over my hammy, okay? And the waitress would see one of us and, and say, is that, is, is that for your kid? Is that, is that for your kid, your, your comic book that you're reading? And, and because they were a, a dominion of, of, of childlike Propriety. They, they, they believed that comic books belonged with kids and adults enjoying kids was even up until the 
mid-early 90s, it was frowned upon. It was seen as, oh, man, so you really didn't advance. <laughs> you really didn't advance beyond your comic books, okay? So so that 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 is an, a, a, a funny aspect that we have grown out of due to the proliferation of all this incredible material, which you can get at Amazon, HBO Max, Disney+, Plus, you know, uh, Hulu. Every single platform now is bringing you giant comic book material, big budget comic book material, expansive. Those special effects I talked about, they've been refined. Superpowers are depicted in all manner of impressive ways now across all of these different platforms. And so we have watched comics explode. Well, the 90s was a key time to those comic books exploding. And what I wanted to do today was share with you a couple of, once again, as, I, as I've told you guys, some of these... Uh, some of these interviews that I have um, that I have uh, cultivated over time, and I really believe the interviews, the art, the archives, can tell you so much about where the business was at. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you. So, sometimes uh, I've said some stuff, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I love to share with you this stuff. Uh, markers in time, markers in time that 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 really mark the progress, the evolution of the art form. Now, no less. Today we are visiting with the Comics Journal, number 152, and it has an amazing, two amazing interviews that we're going to go back and forth with today. One is by the architect, and we're going to discuss a little bit about that time, the architect of the X-Men all throughout the late 70s, early 80s, and that gentleman is named Chris Claremont. He has probably written your favorite X-Men stories. He wrote mine. He wrote my favorite X-Men stories. If you enjoy the expansive Days of Future Past uh, saga, the Dark Phoenix saga, Proteus saga, the Savage Land, the conflicts with Magneto, if it, those are all kind of in the Dave Cockrum and John Byrne phase when the X-Men was breaking out. But maybe you loved Wolverine uh, going to Japan and meeting Mariko and 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 their their wedding and 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 all of the the Yakuza, uh, Yakuza and, and, and Silver Samurai and Viper, uh, you know, calamity and consequences that were going on during that time that made for an epic storyline. All of these things come back to Chris Claremont, who was helming it at the time. Certainly he had some of the best artists at his disposal. But one day they basically push came to shove and Chris left. And, in, and here in 1992, he's going to tell you, he's going to tell you about how that felt being, uh, in his words, deposed. He, he, he was, you know, he, he, uh, the, the king was, uh, you know, removed. He was removed from his throne. And, uh, but, but in, this, in this comics journal, number 152, released in 1992, the headline is, Image Comics moves ahead of DC in the comic book market. I've, I've talked to you guys about this several times. But it says, uh, Marvel Comics is still in first place with a market share of 38%. Imagine that, 1992. You know, if you wonder how big Marvel's market share was, look at that, 38. It's actually more impressive. It's 38.79%. We are on the verge of Marvel having a 39% market share. Did you think they were really worried about Image Comics? They weren't, okay? And, and you'll get to much of what Chris Claremont, the guy who wrote your favorite X-Men stories from 19... 76 all the way through to 1991 okay this this was a decades long uh dominance by chris and and he'll tell you again marvel knows 
how big and successful their company was back even then without movies. The publishing unit and, and what, what was about to become an incredible, an incredibly successful licensing unit was happening right there in the 90s, built on the back of everything that they had built up. The, the uh, Marvel Comics with their dominant almost 39%, 38.79% uh, uh, was, was uh, you know, obviously the market leader. DC Comics, in the month of August, had 17.3. They had a 17.3%. Uh, now, now, that is, these numbers, there was two distributors back then. This is the capital city uh, dis- distribution. Well, Diamond, it's even more staggering. In Diamond's market shares, Marvel at 42. Marvel had 42 and DC was at 17. Well, where was Image Comics? How could we be number number two? How could we jump ahead with only eight books? I've told you guys this, but here it is. It's a headline. It's a big, it's the first in the news banner, in the news section of the Comics Journal, you know, a few pages in, boom, here it is. Image moves ahead of DC in the comic book market. Image Comics with eight comics had 20.2%, 20.2% of the comics industry. Okay, it is the first time in the history of the direct market that an independent comic company moved ahead of either Marvel or DC. We wedged them. We went right in, in between there. So again, the impact of Image Comics can never truly be measured, but in one measurement, because there's so many ways that the that I'm still making notes of how Image Comics 30 years ago, because we are still in the throes of a 30-year anniversary of a label that I helped start with my fellow peer group, uh, uh, Todd McFarlane, Jim Valentino, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino. I already said that, <laughs> Jim Lee. <laughs> so so we, 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 we all kind of went out and rocked and rolled. Wills Portacio, I don't know who, who else I forgot. I, I, I feel like I said seven names if I didn't, forgive me. Um, we, we, we all went out together and we started uh, Image Comics Summer of 92, spring of 92, Youngblood came out, was, not, was alone on the stands for a couple months, was later joined by Todd McFarlane, later, later then followed by Eric Larson, later then followed by Jim Lee, then Valentino, Silvestri, and, and eventually Wills Portacio. So there's everybody's names. That's how we did it. We had 20% of the market with eight comics. The uh, comic book product manager at Capital City, his name was Wayne Markley, uh, said that the, the success of Image is, uh, you know, is due to the, the favor that they've curried with the fans. And he, uh, he said, look, they, they called it Image Comics. August was Image Comics Month, said Dan Mansner, head marketing at Diamond. He said, next month, DC's going to be right back at number two. And uh, despite the projected returns to the number three spot for Image, uh, Markley believes the company is going to remain for quite some time as a force to be reckoned with as it expands its number of titles. I have done dedicated a uh, dedicated uh, podcast to the fact that, that Image Comics killed Superman, and you should read that. You, you, you should listen to that. You should seek that out on your menu. You should read the description. Then you should listen to that episode. It's, um, it's, it's DC Comics. Do you think that went over well? I know I've talked about it several times, but I was surprised going through this comics journal to see it met me right there on the news page. Boom. And, and, and share, shared with me right then and there. Once again, a reminder of what was happening in the summer of 1992. But again, DC reacted 
uh, as you would expect. They, 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 they met the competition and send, set in to motion a series of events like breaking Batman's back, like killing Superman that would keep them on the competitive side of things. So, but again, as I was saying to you earlier, we've got uh, Mr. Chris Claremont, who is uh, being interviewed after being semi-removed from, uh, from, from, uh, from the X-Men books. And, and this, is, this is, as you would suspect, uh, you know, not the nicest. Uh, Chris isn't in the best of moods because, again, he lost his place at the helm. Now, Chris wasn't just writing the X-Men. He was writing two X-Men books. Uh, at this time, Uncanny, and then the newly launched X-Men book alongside Jim Lee. He had launched New Mutants years before, uh, 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 a title that I would later come in and and save from cancellation, turn around and transition that book to X-Force. He had written the very first Wolverine miniseries. He had written all manner of different miniseries. Kitty Pride and Wolverine was the sequel to the Wolverine miniseries that he did with Frank Miller. In short, Chris was a force to be reckoned with alongside all of the different X-Men books, and I had... uh, I had worked alongside Chris for one spectacular uh, situation, a fill-in issue on the X-Men that needed to be done. I could not believe I was actually going to draw an actual Chris Claremont script to this day. I have that script. I I enjoyed it so much. My issue, if you are aware of it, is um, X-Men number 245 is a standalone issue. It is a humorous issue. It is kind of a wink-wink, nod-nod to an event that DC Comics was doing at the time called Invasion, where all of the galactic... um, armies and and alien races of the DC universe merge and battle and invade the DC earth, DC's version of earth. So the DC heroes and and the, you know, affiliates like Green Lantern all rise up to battle them. Well, in one issue, he wanted to do what would happen, uh, uh, kind of a humorous take on all the aliens in the galaxy uh, attacking earth in the pages of this X-Men and, you know, I, I, I was hoping to get a Wolverine in costume, popping his claws. I was hoping to get Cyclops, you know, blasting his visor. I was hoping to get a really big action scene with Longshot. And, you know, none of that really happened. I, I didn't get Wolverine in the costume. I got Wolverine in his civilian clothes. He played a poker game. There are all sort of, um, you know, obvious homages to DC characters throughout Superman, Clark Kent. I had a blast. It's a great comic. It's super funny. It's extremely well uh constructed in, in regards to being a one-issue self-contained adventure, but I embraced it. I loved it. It was a great pleasure to, 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 to do this with Mr. Claremont. And again, even though I didn't get like all the tenants that I was hoping, big Wolverine action, growling, snarling claws, it was a really fun uh, issue to write. And, 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 and that's 1988. And Chris is, uh, in, in the throes of his, of his powers, when he speaks in this interview, he says, uh, they ask him, you know, the interviewer says, uh, since we are talking about the subject of impermanence, because Chris is talking about his former editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter, being removed from Valiant Comics. That's what Chris opens this with. He says, hey, did you hear that Jim Shooter got removed? So they have a little chat about that. Then they segue into his career because that's what we're here to read. And they say, let's talk about the end of your 17-year tenure on the X-Men. I don't remember seeing any published statement from either you or Marvel that, that led up to this being over. And Chris said, yeah, I haven't really said, and Marvel hasn't really said, uh, other than I've told people at various conventions, which 
is that it was a culmination of an ongoing disagreement between myself and the editor, Bob Harris, over the basic treatment and direction of the book. He had his vision of what X-Men should be. I had my vision. And when push came to shove, his prevailed. His being Bob Harris, his being the editor of the X-Men, and also that position being Marvel's corporate stance. They own the X-Men. So she said, the, the, the interviewer says, to someone who's an outsider, it's surprising when push comes to shove between an editor who's been on the book for only a few years versus the writer who's been there from the very beginning. Chris said, that's because you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. It's not as it might be in regular straight publishing, a disagreement between a writer and his editor. What you have is a corporate disagreement between an employee and a supervisor. And in that light, the course of action becomes as clear as it is inevitable. The corporate instinctively supports the supervisor. And so um, then they talk about the difference between you know, a Daniel Steele, a Stephen King, or a Tim Clancy, in that, as Chris Claremont said, uh, if, if in fact something like this were to occur, if this in, in fact were to occur in the publishing world, Tom Clancy would literally just take his books and go to another publisher and create a bidding war because he owns that material or to the extent of that contract. He can wait until that contract with, on those characters runs out and then run, runs to the next side. And, and this is kind of the theme of this interview these two interviews that like you don't own this stuff and, 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 uh, and, and it's reminded and Chris reminds people, I don't own the X-Men. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had been, Chris had been a good, one of the best caretakers of those characters throughout multiple artists. He was the only thing keeping me on in the mid eighties when the book had lost really it's fan, it, it, the, the fantastic art kind of showcase that it had become for, for all of the amazing, talents, you know, Michael Golden, John Byrne, Paul Smith, Dave Cockrum, Barry Windsor Smith. It had become kind of a mundane comic, not as exciting as it was with these visionaries, but Chris held it together until Mark Silvestri arrived. And then we had a brand new, wow, look at this guy. He draws amazing. The X-Men look great. And, 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 and you immediately forgot of the kind of indifference of those couple of years. And you were in the throes of, of true, now a, a new artistic, you know, Dynamo and Chris always, as I've covered through many different X-Men episodes, and there are so many different X-Men episodes that you should listen to throughout this catalog that talk about the evolution of X-Men as a, as a place to draw and, 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 and be at the top of your game because the royalties on X-Men were better than any other comic. And, and if, and if artists wanted to be compensated for drawing, well, they would get paid a lot more to draw X-Men than they would to, to do anything else, which is why suddenly so many great people started knocking on the door and wanted that X-Men gig. And Chris was always at the helm. So, uh, you know, they, they mention about how, how uh, Marvel was utterly panicked when Jack Kirby left. And then this interviewer, in saying this, I remember, you know, how utterly panicked Marvel felt when Kirby left. But then they realized it wasn't going to change anything. And Chris Claremont then says, yes, that was a revelation for them. Anybody could go. Roy Thomas left Conan. No one noticed. Roy Thomas came back. No one noticed. He goes, the thing is that Marvel as a corporation feels, and I think DC is the same way, that to preserve the viability of the character, you have to subordinate the creators to that. You have to say it's the X-Men that sell the comic books because the minute that you acknowledge that it is X-Men as interpreted by, say, Chris Claremont or John Byrne, then you give Chris Claremont and John Byrne a lever to use against the company in negotiations. Without that, the company has nothing to lose by their departure, and you run the risk of what happens when they decide to go.
Chris then goes on to point out a subject that we've talked about recently on this podcast, Howard Shakin's American flag. As he states here, he goes, something of a case in point is American flag, a series that is totally defined by Howard Shakin's artistic and literary vision. So much so that when he left, even though various people after him tried to echo it, it never worked. Even when he tried to do it himself with another artist, it just didn't mesh. On one hand, you could have argued that they could have just put the book on hiatus until Howard Chaykin came back. On the other hand, you had First Comics wanting to continue to make a profit off American Flag. It's the same way for a comic book, a comic book called Nexus. It survived the departure of Steve Rude, uncomfortable though it was, rocky through the art structure uh, after. He said, the trick in mainstream work, in comic book series work, I should say, is to create concepts that will outlast the people who created them. They will go on and on in, perpetu- in perpetuity. And, uh, you know, so, so Chris is pointing out that he realizes his own kind of uh, sense of vulnerability that he had on the X-Men, given that, in, in fact, I mentioned all the X-Men success that he had had, deservedly so, classics, even Inferno, uh, you know, the, the, the most kind of recent prior to, to Jim Lee and myself and Todd McFarling emerging in, in comic books as influencers, even something like Inferno was brilliant. Again, Mark Silvestri drew that, Rick Leonardi, Walt Simonson. But X Factor was a book that was doing bonko numbers, and Chris wasn't writing that. Wolverine had moved away from him. Larry Hama from G.I. Joe was writing Wolverine. Uh, the New Mutants was struggling, but he was no longer writing it. And this is the, the, the four core X-Men books, which at the time were X-Factor, uh, in order of success, X-Men, Wolverine, X-Factor, New Mutants. You know, he was now only writing one of them, but if it came out bi-weekly, obviously he'd do, he'd do two. By the time he left, they had expanded the X-Men with the Jim Lee relaunch. And that's how we all kind of see it, the Jim Lee relaunch, not the Chris Claremont relaunch. We see it as the Jim Lee because it was where Jim Lee was able to kind of, uh, you know, enhance his ideas, his visions, his art, his art, art artistry, and the book really upticked because they had a, a, another artist, a, a visionary talent, you know, in the vein of John Byrne for the first time in, in at that point, you know, 16, 15, 16 years. Chris goes on to, to wonder how it will work for Image Comics if we abandon our posts, which I think, you know, history will show. It had mixed results, just like everything has mixed, resu- mixed results. And Chris says that, you know, You've got Brandon Choi working on Wildcats or whatever scripter Rob is working on on Youngblood if he's not writing it. Uh, the, the, the interviewer, so, so Chris mentions that we're working with scripters. Brandon Choi is working with Jim Lee on Wildcats, he says, and then whatever scripter I'm working on. He then says, on the other hand, these colla- the, the, the interviewer says, on the other hand, these collaborators are in a position where they can accept these limitations. And if the writer on Spawn has an idea for his own book, uh, and Chris Claremont says, well, he could do that. And Cl- Chris Claremont says, this is why Image Comics is the proof of the other side of the pudding, which is the awareness of the part of a lot of us that the market conditions and forces now exist that enable us as talents, and I mean us in a very general sense as comic book creators, to make our own fortunes, to create properties that we own, that we can shape and craft and market accordingly to the individual vision and test the marketplace the same way that Marvel and DC do with their characters and perhaps earn as good a living, if not more with far more artistic and emotional fulfillment. Again, we, 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 we speak about comic books in the dominion of kids, but it was at this point that they were getting more mature. And as I've covered with something like Howard Chaykin's 
American flag. Why did it work? It was more mature. It was R-rated. It was. It had sex. It had greater uh, uh, depictions of violence. It it had uh, you know more mature themes. The more mature themes aspect was was really exploding across comics, and that's what really Chris is talking about. Is is when, when, when like Howard Chaykin is doing American Flag, it's exploding, it's uniquely done in his style. But when someone else takes it over, it just doesn't cut it. But if you want a Wolverine book, you want a Spider-Man book, Marvel is going to have those for you all the time. Marvel's going to have a Batman book for you all the time. But what what was happening and what was allowing this kind of creative indulgent by creators, it wasn't money. People are going to want to tell you it's money. It's not. Even Chris here entertains he talks he literally in this paragraph down here says um the other aspect that has changed in comics is the money i heard rob liefeld paid more in taxes off his earnings on x-force one than a lot of us earned the entire year come on chris redefined earning royalties in comic books mark silvestri as i told you came on he came on board the x-men and people loved it and loved him and he had a house in Malibu, and he drove a silver Porsche. He was seen as the big kind of success story in comics, the guy that was, you know, breaking through on earnings in, in another level. Chris probably was living in Connecticut somewhere uh, around in the surroundings of New York City. Chris was doing wonderfully. He was making royalties on all of those different um, X-Men stories, collections. And and and, and like I said, the, the, uh, the, the market was definitely in a shift and the X-Men was expanding and Chris was doing the one book, but, but the, the proof that there could be a success outside of him had been, had been established. And, and I think as long as he was given the, uh, and rightfully so the, 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 the reins as the top dog, um, because he had semi earned it, 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 everything was fine. Everything was easy. But when, when Bob Harris came on, he wanted to shake it up. He, he saw that, in anticipation of what was coming around the corner, maybe increased competition from the Spider-Man office, he saw that he needed to not do the status quo. He needed to up his game and put new talents across the X-Men. The X-Men line of books, I was part of that. I was fortunate to be part of that. Jim Lee was part of it. It transformed the X-Men office. The, 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 you know, the kids came in droves. And, uh, and the thing is, there is a pull quote here with Chris and, and he says, it's very hard to walk away from 17 years from an entire career built around Marvel. I think looking back on that, I would have done it. Uh, I would have been quite happy to stay there until I had been dropped. So he's really, you know, very intertwined with the work that he did on the X-Men books. He's, he's very, uh, you know, there's a romance there. He, 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 he loves the work that he did. He's proud of it. And he was basically like, I, I could have been there forever. But, you know, when the emergence of the artist happened, uh, there was trouble. There was friction because he had been really writing his own ticket and uh, based on all these different hits. And then one day, a new herd of artists emerged who were vocal about wanting to be involved. They didn't want to be passive. They wanted to have their voices heard. They wanted to dictate storylines. And suddenly you're like, wait, what? I'm, I'm, you know, it's that I'm the captain now. I'm the captain. And Chris had earned it. He was, there is in no way, shape or form will you hear me disrespect any of Chris's contributions. He earned his place. But suddenly now what happens when 
another element is more popular than you? And is there a recognition that it's been 17 years? Maybe I need a fresh coat of paint. I had noticed that Chris did not want to revisit some of the fan favorites, more conflicts with Magneto, a return to maybe the Hellfire Club, to to the Imperial Guard, to the Savage Land, you know, the, 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 some of the adventures. I wanted sequels to all the stuff that I loved, and, 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 it, and for so long we hadn't gotten it. And some stuff, like Nimrod, I wasn't crazy about. I wasn't crazy about Rachel Summers, even though I have a Summers sibling of my own. I, I just, some of that stuff as a fan did not resonate to me. I wanted more of what I grew up loving. And that's what guys like Jim and Wilson, even to some extent myself in the New Mutants, we wanted to go back and revisit some of those tropes. Here is the pull quote of the interview. It is a lot easier for an artist to tell himself he can write for a write than for a writer to convince himself that he can draw. Okay. Uh, he is talking about how he does the X-Men. He talks about when he left uh, X-Men 279 and he says the uh, first 11 pages are mine. I couldn't bring myself. I tried to write the last half of the book. I just couldn't. It wasn't my story. It wasn't my characters. I just couldn't do it. There's frustration. There are all these stories, all these characters who did not get a chance to get fulfilled accordingly to the vision that I had laid out for them. And now they never will. And uh, despite him working on outlines, he said, with with previous writers, I mean, uh, previous editors and writers that he worked alongside. He mentions Anne Nascenti, who was his editor prior to Bob Harris, Louise Simonson, who was his editor and then a co-writer on, on some of the other books that I mentioned. Uh, he said, I put myself in a position where I do things out of choice. Sometimes people do things out of necessity, but where the relationship between creator and publisher is a more, um, he, this is what he believes is key and what he desires, that, that the Relationship between creator and publisher is more of an equal partnership. Well, they're always going to own the characters. And I think people have found that, you know, when the guy that creates an adult version of Bucky, not Bucky, that was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. I keep coming back to this because the character that you meet that Sebastian Stan is portraying is Bucky. When you meet him again, he is still Bucky. Because you gave him longer hair and a robot arm does not mean that he is no longer Bucky. Okay? And Bucky was owned by Marvel. And that new entity is still owned by Marvel because it's an extension of Bucky. If you give a new costume to Spider-Man, that is all that is, is a new costume. If you, if you put another person in the Spider-Man con costume and the, and the book is called Spider-Man, the character is still Spider-Man. You know, how many Robins have there been since I was a kid? You know, there, there, there's been Dick Grayson. There's been, there's been, you know, Drake. There's been all, all manner of, of different characters. Uh, who have who have been the, the the Robin persona, but it's still Robin. And, and miraculously, they, they all have the same parted hair uh, and, and roughly the same costume. It's Robin. But, but Batman has an incredible knack for for finding young men who look just like Robin to fight alongside him. But there have been all manner of different people that wear different costumes. Those costumes are the dominion of the publisher. You have to understand that going in. I understood it going in. But again, this is semi-sad. Again, let's go to that quote. It is much easier for a, an artist to convince himself that he can write than for a writer to convince himself that he can draw. That's true. Drawing's hard. So what we have here is, is him, you know, uh, very much... Uh, he is dealing with this life post X-Men. 
And, uh, you know, then he, he talks about, uh, how image comics, you know, their perception with how they treat writers and, and it, it kind of veers off into, into less territory, but, you know, Chris is, uh, sad that his visions that he didn't get to be a, a part of, of what he completed because he was now being told what to do because the world changed. And, and, uh, I'm not saying Chris was inflexible. Chris just suddenly was up against, I used to dictate all the terms and now the terms are dictated to me and that's going to be hard to handle. Now in the, in the flip of this, the other giant interview in this magazine is Todd McFarlane. And it, 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 that interviewer, interestingly enough, starts out with complete misinformation, but that's because the guy that interviews it despises uh, somebody named Rob Liefeld even more than he despises Todd McFarlane. And boy, does he, this is a contentious interview. I'm not going to go through the entire thing. But again, what you get through here is through the eyes of Todd McFarlane and through the eyes of uh, Chris Claremont is a snapshot of what is going on in, in the world of, of, uh, comic books in 1992. And the, uh, the viewpoint from Todd is obviously going to be a lot different. Now he starts by saying, uh, so let's start at the beginning. This is the interviewer, Gary Groth. He's also the publisher of comics journal. He says, let's start at the beginning. Uh, my impression is you're the ringleader, the guy who started image comics. Is that true? Well, it's interesting here. Because Todd McFarlane weighs in and says, well, I, I think you're going to find that each guy's got a different take. And then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try and give you a good Todd here. If, if you're asking me, my, my interpretation is Rob Liefeld and I were talking about doing something on our own. Uh, Rob had, been, uh, had this idea for Youngblood and, and I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do. Okay, that, there's some truth there. Uh, it, you know, I, I was the guy who was like, I think I'm going to go and do my own thing because the window was open for me. And, and in this time uh, that we were experiencing, I felt like this was the best time for me to maximize. I've, I've, I've covered a lot of this ground, so I'm not going to cover this. This is just a context, a paragraph. He says, uh, you know, I, I, I quit doing Spidey because uh, I had a new baby daughter. Then Rob announced Youngblood. Caught everybody by surprise. Caught me by surprise. Robbie, why didn't you tell me, bud? <clears throat> If, if, if I'd have known, uh, I'd have come up with a character and we could have done a crossover. And uh, and we, we we were also talking to Eric Larson. He was going to do something. And then it was like, well, well we got three of us. Why, why don't we push the envelope and, and, and get some other guys? So uh, he's, you know, he's like, you know, let's create a vacuum. And the interviewer says, a vacuum? Like, and he says, it was a matter of nudging people. You know, some of the nudging came from Rob. A lot of the nudging came from me. So you'll, you'll find Jim Valentino, just side note, put out a book earlier this year in his version and Eric Larson version and my version lineup. The three of us were always going to break off and do a company. Uh, that's the core of Image Comics. But but what, what's, what's interesting in this is Gary Groth, who is the publisher of Comics Journal, and he is a purveyor of art. You have to understand the Comics Journal, if you were getting interviewed by the Comics Journal, Anytime, 70s, 80s, 90s, you knew they were going to come at you with maybe a little more um, interesting, sometimes harsher, more introspective questions. He really pushes Todd on this interview as to whether, you know, the, the, the high art of comics to the 
maybe the simpleness of comics and everything in between. And Todd's answers, he won't be pinned down. Gary Groth tries to accuse him that he's not a very um, good writer. And then Todd's like, sue me, I'm not a good writer. I, I, and he's like, well, what do you read? And <laughs> the best answer in here is Todd says, I read the sports page. I told you, bud. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is he t- challenges Todd and says, do you think you would be popular? He basically tells Todd, I don't believe you would have been popular outside of drawing Spider-Man. And he says, uh, you needed to work at Marvel for several years. And, and he says, uh, you know, and, and then Marvel made your success. And Todd says, that's a, that's a problem. You see, I disagree. And, and the interviewer says, you do. And Todd says, uh-huh. And the, and, and the interviewer again, Gary Groth says, you think you'd have sold a million copies of Spawn if you hadn't drawn Spider-Man for Marvel? And uh, Todd McFarlane, word for word here, he goes, uh, again, being the shit that I am, I owe Marvel one thing. And, and, and do you know what that is? And Gary says, what? And he goes, they own the copyright to Spider-Man. That's all. That's all I owe them. That's all. I pretty much will acknowledge for them, I thank them for giving me a wide forum. I thank them for allowing me to hone my abilities. And I thank them for owning the copyright to Spidey. But if you think for one minute that Todd McFarlane would be a nothing right now without Marvel, Gary, you don't know me. You don't know me because you know why? There's a character called Batman. I'd have grabbed Batman and I would have done something. Would I have been as big as today? Nah. But that was never my golden life. And then Gary says, but Todd, you're, my point is you needed a pre-owned cor- corporate character to become as successful as you are. To be as successful as I am. Is, is that it? And he says, yes. But you're assuming now that that was my goal, to be successful. And Gary says, no, 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 I'm not assuming that at all. I'm just saying that you wouldn't be as successful as you are today unless, you know, you had Marvel or DC. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I, I guess that makes sense, Todd says. He goes, "I, I guess it depends on what success is. See, you and I have different definitions of success. You're, you're taking it at where I am now, physically, mentally. And that I've sold a million copies of Spawn. Would I have sold a million copies of Spawn? Nope. Gary says, how do you measure success? And I am reading to you verbatim. If you are confused, I am reading to you verbatim. Gary says, how do you measure success? It ain't the number I sell. I guarantee you. Got nothing to do with comics. I got, I'd have enough, I've had enough people do interviews of me and ask me how much money. Let me tell you what. Todd McFarlane's about. I got a wife I love dearly. I've always loved. I've been with for 14 years. I'm a rich man in that I have a very understanding and caring, beautiful wife. I have good friends and family. You know what? They could take all of my fame. They could take all my fortune and just let me do comics that sell five grand, 5,000 copies just so I could eke out a living. I'd still do comic books. I'd still do comic books. He says, the, Todd says, the rest of it is a Western civilian civilization success. If you sell a lot of copies, okay, then it's okay for us to allow our kids to do comic books. If you make a lot of money, that's okay for us to allow our kids to do it. That's why it's okay for doctors and lawyers to let their kids be doctors and lawyers. That's why I was wrong to stop doing Spider-Man at the top of my career twice and willing to walk away because what people see as success, as a big shot, as a fan favorite, that was never my goal in this business, ever. I consider a blessing more than anything. I've had more than my five minutes of fame. Anything else is now bonus time. Uh, 
Gary talks to him about engineering his success as an artistic uh, challenge, as, as, as putting more pop on the page. And uh, I think the most interesting quote that we're going to let linger here as we dissect these interviews, this contrast, Chris Claremont saying, you know, I should, you know, I, I, I wasn't like Tom Clancy. I couldn't take my work on the X-Men and go take it to a higher bidder because Marvel owned the X-Men. Uh, Todd says in, in this, in this interview, he, he talks about, um, the, the interviewer presses him about the, the amount of, of copies that he sells and, 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 and Todd, Todd's answer to this, when he is asked about the, the copies that he sells, uh, The interviewer says um, that in regards to the different uh, the different covers, he said, "So you sold two and a half million copies of Spider Man." He goes, "Yep." He goes, uh, "There is the interviewer says there is no way in the world that that comic book of two and a half million would, would be worth anything if the market weren't manipulated." Todd says, and again, this is the, the top of the manipulate. Todd was kind of number two. I've covered Batman 89 was coming out. Batman put out multiple covers of a Batman comic. There was no art on the covers. They were different colored uh, cardstock covers that were stapled over the regular comic book. They were like, I, I've said before, there was red, blue, green, orange, maybe. The, maybe the, 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 when they went back to press, they made a pink. But the, the, most, the most important aspect of this question is, is the, is the, is the market being manipulated? Because again, Todd's comic came out in four different editions. There were polybagged versions. There was a newsstand version. There were different colors. Um, there was a reverse kind of negative, you know, there was silver ink on one of them. So Todd says, you know, you're right. Everybody's either to blame or to be patted on the back for that in regards to there's no way you could sell two and a half million without it being manipulated. He goes, uh, I guess it depends on your point of view. I couldn't, I'll, I'll do a little talk here. I, I couldn't do anything at that point. I fight one way or the other. Th that was a decision I didn't have. I didn't have anything to say about that. M my voice was irrelevant. Do I think that's a good way of doing it? Take a look at Spawn. Look at that first issue. How many variations are you getting on Spawn? One, one comic. That's all you get. I'm not a fan of multiple covers. If that's what you're asking, I think that is cheating the public. I'm not a fan of multiple covers. If that's what you're asking, I think that's cheating the public. You're selling them the same product twice. You want to talk about snapshots in time. Mr. Todd McFarlane has just, uh, that was so good. I took a picture of it. That is a snapshot in time. As we know, that is no longer the case given that we do get multiple covers of Spawn all the time. So as market conditions changed to move Chris Claremont away from his baby that he built, market conditions have changed in the last 30 years that Todd now is no longer an, uh, uh, an opponent, using his own words. This is not a man who is, feels strongly against multiple covers. He is a man who absolutely uh, embraces multiple covers and multiple, uh, you know, aspects of ordering ordering multiple covers and you're going to say rob everybody is they are there is no condemnation it's just this quote is this quote this is a guy that was like one cover one comic to now 20 covers 
you know, whatever it takes. And, and so a snap, these snapshots in time, how viewpoints over time change. Did Chris Claremont eventually make his way back to the X-Men? He did. He, he, he was welcomed back. It took almost another decade. But, you know, they knew that people would love to see him back on those uh, characters because he had built such a long-term, you know, established, really, romance with those, with those, with those characters. And we wanted to see him speak with that voice again. And he did. He came back and he's been back off and on. And, and he always knew that they weren't his. There's that quote where he'd like, I, I, there's a part of me that would have done it forever. You know? But after 17 years, push came to shove. He says, I couldn't do the, 11, the last 11 pages of this book because it wasn't my characters. It wasn't what I wanted them to say. It wasn't how I envisioned them wrapping up. So he left. You know? And, and so the business of comic books, depending on the time you're working on them, carries with it you know all manner of different opinions and viewpoints because look i i started this talking about how we start we we've only just begun to put comic books out of the reach of this perception that they're only kid stuff and part of that has been helped by the blockbuster success of all these movies and then the licensing that puts them on the shelves where we see the plushy animals the action figures you know where we see the the watches, the plates, the blankets. Do you not think I have Deadpool blankets? I have Deadpool, I have Deadpool coasters for your drink. I have a Deadpool teapot. I have Deadpool mugs. I have Deadpool blankets. I have Deadpool shirts. I have Deadpool ties, belts. Again, the merchandising, it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, comic books. Now switch out Deadpool for Spider-Man and X-Men and, and Superman and Batman. Obviously, there's so much of this. But but this 1992, these interviews with two titans of comics, Chris Claremont and, and Todd McFarlane really portray a snapshot of a time where Chris is like these artists believe they could write. Well, yes, because we were grown, we were we were weaned on artists who believed they could write. John Byrne, Howard Chaikin, Frank Miller, Walt Simonsons were artists. Jim Starlin, they were artists first. They learned they, that, that that they could write and tell their own stories. We all did the same thing. We followed in their footsteps. And possibly the greatest writer in the history of comics, and that's what I will tell Chris Claremont. No, I don't believe it's Alan Moore. I believe it's Chris Claremont. Was bruised. He was um, somewhat, you know, down and blue. Possibly resentful of the fact that he was shown the door. That they, 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 they. He felt that they abandoned his vision. And on the flip side, you got Todd McFarlane who's starting out and saying, "I would have been successful regardless." And the interviewer you know, presses Todd and Todd proves his point by saying, well, if I hadn't done it with Spider-Man, I had done it with Batman. Well, both of those are big giant number one characters from their own companies. But did Todd, as many of us did use those characters to slingshot? In my case, I had to create my own life raft. I had to create the cables, the Deadpools, the dominoes, the Shredder stars. I, I, I say it over and over again because I'm blown away by it. Young Rob life. I'll let a plan. I am more blown away by that guy than anything. I, 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 I literally talk about him as if he's another person. He's somebody I respect deeply, but he created his own, uh, life raft. And then the follow-up question is, do you believe those characters would have had a resonance if they were not in the X-Men office? I believe being in the X-Men office helped them, but I had to make those connections and create that back history that got you involved and connect them to the right different pillars of the X-Men history to make them, you know, resonate. Because look, let's be honest, guys, there's a lot of X-Men characters. A lot of characters have been created. None of them um, have maybe the same resonance as a Cable and a Deadpool. I mean, you've got you know, Wolverine is way up there. And then Cable and Deadpool, they're, they're way up there. There's a reason that the execution, it comes down to the execution in the end. But 19, 1992, these interviews are a snapshot of a decidedly different time in comics. One uh, king has exited the throne and one is now getting comfortable on the throne. 
with Todd and with Chris Claremont. And I thought the contrast was just too great not to um, to investigate and to share. As I look over this this comics journal interview and 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 these tale, tales of these two titans, Todd McFarlane and Chris Claremont. Todd is launching. He he has launched his own success with Spawn. He has launched his own success. Uh, by being part of the giant image comics explosion. He is in command of what he's going to do. He says very boldly also in this interview, I have no licensing people. I don't have an agent. I don't have anybody who represents me. I don't have a staff. I don't have people. You know, eventually Todd would get a staff and an agent and people and he'd build out. And obviously he's, he's, he's in the, in the world that we, you know, you know, that we enjoy now where, where, where he's got a, company that makes toys and more than one comics and uh he he's a guy in this interview who is just beginning to feel all that is coming his way he mentions several times that he's famous he says you know with spider-man you know um uh you know i i had become i had become famous but i didn't set out to become famous well yeah honestly i don't think anybody at comics at that time set out to become famous george perez did not come out to set out to become famous Frank Miller. You guys, we were just kids who wanted to tell comic books and get paid. You know, again, I've talked, I've told you guys many times, I just wanted to help my parents out. They were broke. My dad's multiple brain surgeries had just thrown us into a financial calamity as a family with very few options. My mom dutifully kept working as a secretary. Um, Maybe that's not everyone else's stories. Maybe they don't, they weren't looking to comics to, to help, help their family out of a, out of a pickle. I, I saw what comics was available in regards to Mark Silvestri. I've told you he was the guy. I didn't know Mark was driving a silver Porsche and lived in the beach uh, on a beach house in a beach house on Malibu until someone told me. I didn't know that. I had already been working in comics, but it was like, hey, there's this over there. And and one of the guys that told me that was Todd. He was like, success, you know, in comics is changing. And there's, there's big money. There's like movie money. There's Hollywood money. There's, you know, there, there's a, a different level. And I, and I didn't know. I wasn't aware. It wasn't something that I was even, you know, uh, uh, just anticipating. I knew I'd get a page rate if I did 22 pages and I got $150 a page or whatever I was getting um, that I could make X amount of money, sock some away and help my parents. Once the true money did start coming, I did help my parents. I bought them a house. I, I, I sequestered them away in a nice neighborhood and gave them, like, uh, moved my grandparents in, too, because the house was big enough to have, to have more people, and, and it was more the merrier. And, you know, I, I, I did my best to, to, to help out my family in the exact way that I set out, you know, to do when I first got into comics, which was just make a paycheck. Make a paycheck. All you want to do is draw and tell stories and get compensated for it so that you can draw and tell more stories so that you can get paid and compensated for it for wait so that you can draw more stories. You know, it's just a circle again and again. You just want to draw stories. So Todd became famous because his Spider-Man was super popular. And I, I told you there was a time uh, early on uh, I was doing the second chapter of the extinction agenda. Uh, the last one before I segued out because I had to start writing and drawing New Mutants 98. Todd was in Southern California. He was appearing on a game show called, um, uh, uh, oh man, it's, 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 it's where you, three people lie and, uh, and one person is telling the truth and you have to pick that out. And of course that escapes from me, but Todd was, Todd had auditioned to be on a, on a game show. I think Todd was 
exciting to see where comic books could take him. What now that I'm a popular artist that sold two and a half million copies of Spider-Man, where, where can that take me? And, and so I think all of us were entertaining that at a certain point. Like I said, my phone started ringing off the hook when an Im image comic suddenly, suddenly you're like, wow, this is what it feels like. I, Cause I'm in control of the entire business of, of, of whatever I'm creating at the time. And I did it just on instinct because I felt like that window was open and I had to take advantage of it. And if there was a time to build something beyond what I was doing for Marvel, that's what I could do. And for Chris Claremont, he's saying in this interview that it occurred to him much later. It occurred to him much later. Uh, Chris says, you know, that, 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 that he was truly content. And if given a chance to do it again, he would. He states that out loud. That, that, that he really could have been content just to write the X-Men for the rest of his life. He loved it. So much of his heart and soul are in those incredible comics from 1976 all the way to 1991 where he leaves. Chris was an absolute um, auteur of that entire family of comics. He had great instincts. He had great vision for those characters. He gave us some of our favorite Wolverine, Storm, Cyclops, Colossus, Rogue stories ever. But what you have here in this snapshot in this 19, 1992 comics journal interview is you have two guys who are um, who have found different paths. Claremont is regrouping. He's talking about the possibilities that he's, he's going to entertain. You know, again, he, he, he's saying what, 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 what he would have done the same and, and what he would do differently. And he talks about at the end of his interview that he has a sea of possibilities. And he says he's creating some, some, new, some new characters. One is the Huntsman that, that, that walked into a Wildcats storyline that Chris introduced him through, the Huntsman. He has uh, some projects with Dark Horse called Renegade. He's going to be writing some Alien Predator licensed stuff. He's, he's uh, entertaining possibilities with, with DC Comics, but the comic world was changing. We think the comic world changed now. It was changing then. It's always changing. It's ever-changing. And the one most interesting thing that Chris talks about here at the end is uh, he has a quote here at the end that I'm going to read to you, but it comes in the form of, uh, of Chris talking about the fact that, uh, that comic books, that, that superheroes, that, 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 uh, that superheroes are still the dominion of mainstream comic books and and he's he's very adamant in the fact that you know the uh the comic book superheroes continue to be the most popular choice no matter how much people are trying to create more mature titles he's mentioned nexus he mentions the badger a, a book at the time he mentions uh uh you know howard shaken's american flag several times but he talks about how the fact the fact that the the superheroes are basically undefeated. And he has a pull quote here. He says, comics is pop culture. Chris Claremont, comics is pop culture. This is in the Comics Journal, number 152 in August 1992. Comics is pop culture, and pop culture is in your face, and it's violent and melodramatic and messy. And I think that's the thing. You know, comic books had moved so far beyond the, the Christopher Reeve 19... You know, 78 Superman movie, even before that was released, the stuff that Chris was doing, the X-Men was incredibly violent. Wolverine was already killing savages in, 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 in the jungles of the savage land. And, and Chris 
Chris Claremont was having to explain because the editor-in-chief said, you, 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 you can't be killing people like this, but we saw it. He stuck his claws in a guy's mouth. I mean, he basically, you know, Wolverine was murdering people who, got, who stood in the way of the X-Men. More su- suggestive material was coming our way. It was already more violent than I think the general public thought at the time. And so when he says comic books is pop culture and pop culture is in your face and it's violent and it's melodramatic and it's messy, okay? Chris states so many really just kind of ahead of their time or, you know, we think they were ahead of their time, but at the time he was, he was right on the money. He was right on the money. And the bottom line is, again, yes, the, the, the superheroes that were the most popular selling items in the comic store, whether it was Youngblood or Wildcats or X-Men or Justice League or, or the Fantastic Four, the superheroes are now the big popular domain of the current realm of pop culture that we are visiting, that we are existing in, that I discuss with you guys each and every episode. Superheroes, superheroes are top, are top of the charts. What, what do we go back an hour? And I, I told you that, that we were, Image Comics got 20% of the marketplace. We were number two. We beat DC Comics. DC Comics, by the way, had over 50 comics that exact same month. Something to chew on. What was Image Comics doing? We were doing superhero comics. What were we criticized for doing superhero comics? Oh, these guys aren't going off to do anything other than superhero comics and kind of establishing, you know, attacking us with a, you know, they're not really doing anything that's, that's terribly advanced or innovative. No, we just wanted to tell stories. It goes back to, why did we get into comics in the first place? Did any of us get into, into comics to be rich? No, none of us, none of us. We got into comics because it's our passion, it's our desire, but the work that we did inspired people and it inspired greater numbers and bigger sales. I'll say it before, I've, I've, I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again. New Mutants one, number 100, New Mutants number 100 is my personal favorite achievement. It doesn't have five covers. Todd in here says in 1992, I am not a fan of multiple covers. I've read that to you. That is a pull quote. I word for word. I'm not a fan. He argues that he would have been popular with Spider-Man if he had done Batman for say, you know, for instance, well, new mutants 100 sold a million copies. It went back to press three times. It had no scratch and sniff, no acetate cover, no glow in the dark, uh, you know, special effect. You know, it, it, it didn't have a die cut, uh, uh, special treatment on the cover. It was just a comic book with the cover and staples. It was double-sized and introduced you to a whole bunch of new characters. Shatterstar Farrell in action for the first time. It established James Proudstar's brother would be called uh, Warpath. It, 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 it pulled together the X-Force. It expanded... The roster, it gave you more Domino, more Shatterstar, more Feral. It, 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 you know, obviously Cable. Deadpool had just arrived earlier. One cover, an anniversary, a last issue. It's the best-selling last issue of any comic. That is my special kind of uh, uh, thing that I, myself, as a comic book creator, hold dear to me because, again, it doesn't have multiple covers. It wasn't sliced and diced and, you know, the, the Star Wars, the, the number one best-selling comic book of the 21st century is Star Wars. When Marvel brought back Star Wars and reunited with, with Marvel, the, 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 these two icons that had, you know, launched such success in 1977's Star Wars adaptation, which went on for years and years to, to, to be this incredible series for Marvel Comics, but it had gone to Dark Horse for 
20 years, almost 20 years. But now it was on its way back to Marvel. Nostalgia kicked in. They gave retail covers. There was maybe 60, 70 covers. It sold a million copies. A lot of covers, a lot of numbers. Huge, huge um, accomplishment. We don't take that away from them regardless of the covers. But the bottom line is New Mutants did the same cover with one single image, one cover, exactly what Todd was talking about here. And I filled it with my dreams, my hopes, my desires, my concepts, my characters, because I loved it. Because I loved doing comics and I wanted to take you on a fun ride. That's why we do this. That's why all of us, I have never met anyone who wanted to get into comics to be rich. It is, I've been doing this for 37 years. I have never met one comic book person who wanted to be rich. So at the one hour and 11 minute mark, I am letting you know, I have never met one comic book person that got into comics to be rich. Not a single one. I meet people who want to express themselves with their story and art. We covered a lot of ground today. Let's go back over it. Chris Claremont, Todd McFarlane, two top selling icons of the comics industry. In 1992, they were on two different paths. This comics journal interview what caught my eye more was the, the Todd interview I remembered very clearly. It was the Chris Claremont interview that I didn't remember as clearly. And, 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 and it's a sad interview. I, 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 hesitate to say, to, I hesitate to say it, but it is sad. He is, um, you know, uh, it's like they went to the king. They brought him off his throne. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to pass away. But they said, you no longer sit on the throne. You are, you know, being basically shown the door to a smaller kingdom. Good luck to you. And I think it was uh, a bit of a wound for Chris. And like I said, part of why he was clashing with the New Age was the New Age wanted bigger, bolder pictures, bigger, bolder images. Todd talks in his interview, I have been very forthright. Uh, we wanted to excite you on the page. We, had, we created anchor images. People called them jerk shots. We didn't. Um, it, our, our imagery was splashier. It was different. We didn't want to do the cookie cutter eight panel uh, grids. Even Mark was doing some grid stuff with, with, with Chris because Mark was just happy to do what Chris was writing. And he was so happy to be doing that book and doing as well as he was on that book. And Mark's art is beautiful, but Chris was most definitely, you know, driving the entirety of that vehicle and Mark was drawing it. Then Jim Lee comes along and wants, and, and wants bigger, splashier stories, splashier images, maybe uptick on the action a little. Um, like I said, my X-Men issue was, was no action. That there was an, an issue right before that where, where the girls all went, the girls of the X-Men, Storm Rogue, Kitty Pride, maybe Dazzler, um, Polaris, they all went out on a shopping spree. It's literally an entire episode of them going shopping. And, and so, so Chris had really dialed back the action. So, so some of the conflict came from this new age. We wanted to have our action. We wanted to compete on the page um, and, and give big, bold, splashy, action-driven images. And we did, and it put us in stark contrast to the writers. So Chris was following his path, and again, he found his way back to the X-Men. Todd followed his path and found his way to mega success. Uh, you know, we, we image comics will always go down as the right place, right time. Now, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Rob Liefeld are going to tell you one story of how image comics comes together. Gary Groth needs desperately for Todd to be the ringleader. So he says, you're the ringleader. And then Todd, in, in all his honesty, as I read to you, says, well, it, it's Rob, Rob moved first. And uh, let history, you know, reflect that the Valentino, Eric Larson, and Rob Liefeld version of this story is, in fact, the version. We consulted with Todd. Todd was, I, I've done an entire episode on how Todd was trying to get into the sports cards business. Look look that episode up. Look look that episode up. It is, um, 
there are a lot of episodes that have to do with Todd McFarlane. Why do I talk about the same people all over again? Because they're imprimatur. The footprint we have left on comic books is like the footprint that Spielberg has left in films and James Cameron has left in films and Francis Ford Coppola left in films. So, a tale of two titans, two different uh, huge talents in 1992 evaluating the different directions that their career has gone. And I wanted to share that with you today and just revisit it, revisit their words, revisit their, their, uh, outlooks, their attitudes, um, the, the challenges that they were presented with, you know, uh, are, are you only a success? Cause you do Marvel stuff. Are actors that are in Marvel films that get bigger grosses, are they completely beholden to that? That's an entirely different podcast, but maybe, maybe it's worth, uh, entertaining. I'm going to tell you, I went long today. I went long. And when I go long, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I have to wrap things up a little quicker. And what we're going to do today is I am in fact going to read your reviews because that is the one thing I am going to, um, fit in. I, 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 it, I am, uh, mistakenly sometimes I look past that. That's if there's one thing to fit in, that's the thing that I need to fit in. And this is man, you don't get any quicker than this. When you guys write reviews for this show and say that you enjoy all of the different uh, conversations that we're having on Rob's observations. When you do that, it helps our, 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 our show so much. It helps um, elevate the platform. It helps give us a higher uh, uh, awareness. And I appreciate it so much. I appreciate when you guys do that. When you do leave a review, I read it at the, at the end of the show. It's the end of the show. And here we go. Uh, the end of today's show, I am reading from EXT1JVS. That's how they signed it. EXT1JVS, five stars, love the show. I cannot believe that this show, Rob Observations, went under my radar for so long. Great show, keep it up. I look forward to listening to this every morning on my car ride into work. That's it. Let me tell you something. That's enough. I, I, I'm so inspired by that. I can't believe the show went under my radar for so long. Great show. Keep it up. Look forward to this every morning on my car ride to work. Thank you, X1JVS. The enthusiasm carries me. It really does. And today, uh, again, pop culture, comic books, where it's been, where it's going, it's always good to look back in order to look forward. Thank you for listening to the show. I appreciate it so much. I'm on Twitter at Rob Liefeld. I'm all over social media. So, so here's my plugs. I'm on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, the first full name at Robert Liefeld. I have a blue check next to my name that knows that, that you will know that you're talking really to me. And I'm talking back to you in our mentions, our discussions. I love talking to you guys on Twitter. Follow me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, on Instagram. Check me out. I'm at Rob Liefeld. Follow me. Got another blue check. Tells you it's really me. I read your mentions, your DMs, your messages, your comments. Thank you so much for interacting with me on Instagram. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I am on an app called Whatnot. Whatnot is the killer new app that has taken over the collectible business where you can go and find all manner of different shows and retailers and people people who are selling you comics, toys, uh, apparel, uh, shoes, kicks, uh, trading card games, role-playing games. I am Rob Liefeld on Whatnot. Just look me up. Download that app. There's so much for you to participate in. Live streams that 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 all different manner of items are being shared and auctioned off. On my comics, on my live stream, I share signed comics, signed artwork. 
uh, signed Funko Pops, signed toys. Uh, we do it all. We cover, that's my categories. Uh, haven't gotten to shoes and apparel yet. Maybe that's coming real soon, but look for me on whatnot. I love um, sharing with you guys. I'm on Wednesdays and Saturdays. I am selling you uh, different comic books that I have signed, exclusives. We have a number of exclusives. We've got a Spider-Man exclusive. We've got a Brigade exclusive. Please check me out. I would love to share more of my stuff with you on whatnot. Woo! Over on Facebook, we have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Uh, myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala are the administrators. We will be the ones who click you on through so that you can have fun with us. We talk about all the stuff that I've created, I've worked on, so it's a big, broad spectrum. I didn't create G.I. Joe, but I worked on it. So we discuss Snake Eyes, Storm Shadow, all of it, the Avengers, Fantastic Four, all of the great properties that I've been able to um, work on in addition to the characters that I've created like Dove, like Deadpool, like Cable, like X-Force, like Youngblood, like Brigade, all the image stuff. So jump on in on the party. It's going down. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. The administrators are myself and Terry Sala. That is how you will know that you are being clicked into the right place. We are the two administrators. That is our group on Face Group. Check us out. You guys, here's the, here's the long and the short of it. Have some fun. You know, it's been a couple of years. We're coming out. We're getting better. The world is always a little wacky. I, I certainly, as a young man, didn't see this coming, this kind of world, the, the technology, the breakthroughs that have created some of what I believe is the insanity and the craziness and the pressure. Kick back. Have a great drink. Have some great food. Enjoy your friends. Watch some great television, some movies. Go do it right now stop this podcast and, and go, you know what? I've been meaning to watch that great film. I've been meaning to read that great comic. Go do that and, and, and fill yourself with inspiration and, uh, and relief or, or, or entertainment and, and, you know, release all those different, uh, chemicals that, that, that'll ease you and, and, and chill you out. And again, maybe at the worst, it'll inspire you because the grind is everything. It, 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 it the grind, uh, you know, we all are a part of the grind and it sometimes can really get to us. When I say the grind is everything, I mean it's everything that we are all dealing with on a constant daily basis. So those times that we escape it, maybe it's going out with your wife, your girlfriend, your 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 your, your buddies, all your different friends. You're you're you know gonna go see a movie together. You're gonna go play pickleball. You're gonna go play tennis. You're gonna go for a jog. Whatever, get out, do it, have that release. I'm rooting for you. Your mental, your spiritual, your emotional, and your physical self. Keep those quadrants um, uh, uh, accounted for. Um, it's important to the, whole, the, the the entirety of our health. And uh, I'm rooting for you, as always. Fist bump right through the microphone. Fist bump in each and every one of you. Wishing you all the best. I know you guys are wishing me the best. Please circle back around. Find me. I'm going to be here waiting for you. We most absolutely, certainly, definitively will talk again real soon. Mm-hmm.